Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. It's been a joy this last week to see something approaching repentance on the part of authorities, even though maybe it wasn't their repentance, but to see Roe reversed has been great joy. A caution to you, um, over the course of the last eight months, a number of us have been writing a, a, a document on abortion, which is exactly what you need to read right now, right now, because without it, you can't begin to understand what's going on right now. That sounds bodacious to say, but it's absolutely true. Um, Yesterday, the New York Times, as I went to bed, had a headline, the abortion battle moves to drugs. Well, eight months ago, we began to write a document. The whole document is about the fact that really surgical abortion and mifepristone and the other chemical drugs used at the end of the first trimester into the second, they're insignificant now. And this is what everybody's missing. And by God's grace, he's given us... People in this church who are, have training in biochemistry, I asked Jürgen von Hagen when he was here working on this document with us, I said, what are the specialties that are most focused on the, the killing of the unborn by drugs? And he said, well, that would be, bi-. and remember, he was the vice president for research at the University of Bonn. And he said, well, that would be biochemistry and physicians. Well, by God's grace, we have two PhDs in biochemistry and a third ABD. Which ABD stands for all but done. (laughs) So that's Caleb, lazy dog, hasn't finished his dissertation yet. I, I don't know that there's another church in the country that has that concentration, not just of biochemists, the terminal degree, but also... Men with faith with that degree. And so here God has given us a presbytery that wanted this work done. Then he has given us so many people to depend on in the writing of this document. Anyhow, I woke up at 3 o'clock this morning, which is not usual, and I I figured my alarm must be about to go off at 5.30, and I waited and it didn't go off, so I looked at my phone, which I never, ever, ever do at night. Don't ever look at your phone at night. But I did. And it said 3 o'clock, and I thought, whoa. Well, I was now on my phone. So then I looked, and sure enough, I found that Lucas and Alex McNeely and Joseph had just gotten done doing a Herculean work this last week. And trust me, you have no idea how much work they did. But they, last night, got up the document both as web pages, but also as a beautiful PDF. It's just gorgeous. And so you can read it online, and then you can click through all the footnotes down to the bottom, and then there's a little link at the end that clicks you back up into the text. And uh, the document is 85,000 words. That's the length of a 350-page book. All right? You read it. I will be gone. When my dad died, I still had his books. I will be gone, but this book will still be in print. And you can't understand the battle that we now face, especially in the church. Nor can you understand the unfaithfulness of the church the past 50 years. If you don't read the document, and I'm sorry... As usual, nobody gets any money, but the document is important for you to understand the work that is now ahead of us. So anyhow, if you get a chance, uh, I think Alex will be here tonight. Thank him. Um, Thank Joseph. Thank Lucas. You you have no idea how much work they did to get that thing up. It was really mind-boggling. And of course, thank Ben, uh, Brian Bailey, and thank Josh Congrove. Josh has just been... Uh, uh, an ox of work. Just wonderful. 
Now, let me set the scene for our sermon today. Um, It's in the Gospel of John, and our Lord has been teaching the crowd. This is what he did. He taught, and he taught, and he taught the crowd. And then, when it was time to eat, as he did a number of times, he gave thanks to his Father, and then he directed his disciples to feed them. To feed all of them. And we read that there were 5,000 men. So that doesn't include the women and children. There are 5,000 men who sat down and ate their fill. 5,000. And when they were done, the leftovers filled 12 baskets. Now, this led the crowd to do something that was inspired. And that is... They sought to take Jesus by force and make him king. You know, we're not real sophisticated, are we? You know, a guy feeds you and you want to make him king. You know? Well, Jesus knew the hearts of men. And Jesus wasn't so cheap. You know? Politics really is cheap. And so Jesus left them, he escaped their clutches, and he went up on the mountain alone. Well, the next day, the crowd found him again, and Jesus began to teach them again. And our sermon text this morning is the teaching that he gave at that time, found in John chapter 6, verses 35 to 40. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. But raise it up on the last day, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, we are weak. We have trouble believing. We have trouble getting our minds off our stomachs. We are led by men with feet of clay who are sinners as we are. Yet, Father, we have come here to be fed the bread of life. And so we ask you to be faithful. We have come, now feed us, Father. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Excuse me. Well, quite naturally, after this feeding of the 5,000, the discussion centered on food. Specifically, bread. Now, right before our text, Jesus had warned the crowd, saying this to them, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father, God, has set his seal. So Jesus is very clear here in saying, Don't put your mind on the belly. Don't let your belly be your God. Don't give yourself to the food that perishes. It's very interesting to me that at a time in history when we are absolutely and utterly 
degraded in our morals, filthy in our morals. We're so prissy in the church and in scripture. You know, and I have often said to you, for heaven's sakes, everybody else is talking about sodomy, can't I? And so in the church, we're supposed to be so, so sweet and delicate. And the last few years, I've made a point of reading every footnote in the NASB. And again and again and again, our modern Bible translators take the edge off of the actual Greek and Hebrew words. They just do it incessantly, incessantly. Seed, which is, shall we say, an holistic word when it comes to one's own children, is replaced all through scripture with descendants. Now, descendants is a circumlocution for seed. Seed, we kind of get an idea what's going on there, don't we? Well, similarly, when it comes to the issue of food, it's very interesting that Jesus is talking about the fact that um, it's not that the food that we eat that corrupts us, but rather out of the heart, the mouth speaks things that are evil because the heart is evil. And, and he says about food, you remember what he says about food? He says, you know, you eat the food and then I'm not, I, I want to be prissy here. But if you actually heard what Jesus said, you'd gasp. You know, he talks about it, it, it goes somewhere. Now, why does it go somewhere? Because the food of our stomach decays. It rots. It gets putrid. It has leaven in it. It's intended to feed us and then be expelled. And so you miss that when you hear here Jesus talking about the fact that the food perishes, but the food I'm talking about endures to eternal life. You miss that, you know, because we're so prissy. It perishes. You should think about rot. You should think decay. You should think about flatulence. All these organic functions that are connected with our eating. It perishes. What he's trying to do is to get us to get our mind off of the flesh, off of our bellies, off of our stomachs, off of this life, and to think about our souls in eternal life. Are you with me? And so he says to them, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. Okay, so there's food for the body, there's food for the soul, and he's saying, get your mind off food for the body. Think about food for the soul. I'll give you food for the soul, all right? Now, the crowd responded by trying to get him involved in the discussion. Remember the woman at the well, you know, well, our forefathers tell us that we can worship, you know, the Samaritans, and, and, and you guys say, and we say, and you say Jerusalem, we say, and it's the look at the birdie thing. So they do the same thing. They say, hey, remember the manna. Remember how we were fed in the wilderness with the manna. Remember that? The manna. Now you, Jesus, Moses gave us a sign. You know, we had the manna. You give us a sign. This is what actually they say in response to this. Give us a sign. Remember the man? Give us a sign, right? Now think about this. What have they just seen? They've just seen this, this dude feed 5,000 men and their families. with a few fish and a couple loaves and have 12 baskets left over. And immediately, they're like, they're down on this. Yeah, we, we see this gravy train, you know. This is like the manna. Now, do it again. Do it again. Give us a sign. Come on. You know, we never are satisfied. God pours his blessings on us and then pours again, and then pours again, and then pours again, and we then demand a sign. We are never satisfied. And so this is what they come back to Jesus with 
He said, forget about food that perishes. Give yourself to the food that's eternal life. And they say, remember Moses and the man in the wilderness, give us a sign. So Jesus responded, again, this is right prior to our text. These are the verses right immediately before our text. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who's given you the bread out of heaven. But it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Now that's sweet. We need that bread. It's just like there at the well in Samaria. You know, he says, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for living water. And so he says, the bread of God is that which comes down of heaven and gives life to the world. How did they respond? Well, it says in verse 34, then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Now, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? Why would I say it's interesting? Well, because... They just got fed, and then they talked about the man, and then they said, give us a sign. Jesus then redirects or rebukes them, depending on how you want to put it. And then they say, give us that bread. All right, you heard it. That's what they said, give us that bread. Now, here's the question. Do you think that they wanted the bread from heaven that produces eternal life? Do you think that the people that answered him were desirous of the bread that gives eternal life? Was it the right response? Yeah, it's the right response. Do you want the bread that gives eternal life? It's the right response. Do you want the bread that gives eternal life? Do you want the bread that gives eternal life? You know, it hasn't escaped my notice. This is my last time preaching as your senior pastor. And by the way, contrary to what Lucas prayed, it is not a role. (laughs) You take on and off a role, uh, depending on how you feel at any particular time of the day or night. This is a calling. This is a heavy weight that Jody is taking on. But as I stop being the preacher to you each week, I want to say this. One of the most difficult things about preaching to a congregation is that you know that many of the people who are present do not want the bread of life. It's obvious in your faces. It's obvious in the way you relate to your shepherds and to the older women of the church. It's obvious when we talk to you. There are always many people listening to the word of God who don't believe. And the reason is that everyone wants to think of themselves as religious, as having a certain spirituality. Do you understand that? Nobody wants to be irreligious. And so now I come back and say, do you want the bread of life? And do you think the people listening to Jesus wanted the bread of life? Now, a number of you said yes, and that's what you should have said. All of you should have said yes. It is very interesting, we'll get back to this question in a second, but it's very interesting that uh, the, the crowd finally says, Lord, always give us this bread And it is when they ask him to do this that our text begins with Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. They asked for the bread. He then said, I am the bread of life. 
He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. What's really interesting about this exchange over bread with Jesus here is you may not realize it, but it's in this chapter that we have the largest departure of the the disciples of Jesus, because it's in this text that he gets ever more clear about his body and his blood, him being the bread that satisfies our hunger and our thirst. And do you know what the problem is? You know why everybody's scandalized? Everybody's scandalized because they're all like, who do you think you are? We know your parents. We watched you grow up. Who do you think you are? Now, I know none of you ever think thoughts like that about anybody else, right? I've never had anybody say that to me. But once you hear that that's what scandalized them, and you stop and think about it, and then you hear him say this, I am the bread of life. You put yourself there, and this dude puts his pants on just like you do. He's there. He has to use the washroom. And he is saying to you, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. He's like, oh my goodness. You know, this dude has delusions of grandeur. He's almost as good as Adam. We're very, very careful, just like chickens and the rooster. We have our, we have our, our method of ordering our chicken coop. And Jesus could not have violated that order more than by saying what he said. Because he was placing himself not just at the head of the crowd, he was placing himself seated next to God the Father Almighty. Do you understand that? And as I said, this is the point at which in his ministry he has the most disciples leaving him. They can't handle it. They're scandalized. They're like, dude, uh uh-uh, just no. Who do you think you are? He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. We have to recognize at this point that it is very hard for us to get our minds off food, isn't it? How many sermons have you lasted the last 15 minutes just by thinking about lunch waiting? You know? You can put up with a lot of stuff that you have to do by just thinking about what, what's waiting at the table. Do you remember when Jesus warned his disciples, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Remember that episode? Immediately, their minds did what? All he mentioned was leaven. And their minds went to food and to bread. And they thought Jesus was rebuking them because they'd forgotten to bring any bread. But Jesus corrected them, after which we read, quote, Matthew 16, they understood. This, I love this statement of Scripture because <laughs> I don't know why, but it's just like, rarely does Scripture lower itself so far to us to wake us up and get us on the right track. So listen to this blunt, simple statement. It says, they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. (laughs) You know, it's laid out there for you. So if you didn't get it, that's what you need to understand. He wasn't talking about the leaven of bread. He was talking about the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. 
And it is hard to get our minds off food, isn't it? After all, Jesus told us to pray like this, give us today our daily bread. God is the one who made us this way. And yet, surely Jesus is not speaking of food for the stomach when he says, I am the bread of life. Man thinks he lives by bread alone. Man is content with bread alone. Man is never far from hunger. And therefore, man is never far from planning his next meal and even his next snack. Jesus, though, loves man and warns him that life is more than eating and drinking. Jesus warns man that life is not sustained by food for the stomach, but rather food for the soul. You remember when Jesus was in the wilderness, he hadn't eaten for 40 days, you remember this, and Satan is not stupid, and Satan tempted the Son of Man by coming to him and saying, if you're the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. But you remember that Jesus met the temptation by responding, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, unquote. Now then, verse 35 again, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And so we see from that statement that eating the bread, eating the bread is to come to Jesus. Eating the bread is to come to Jesus. Eating the bread is to believe in Jesus. Or to say it another way, coming to Jesus is eating his bread, Believing in Jesus is eating his bread. Those who desire life must come to Jesus and believe in Jesus. If they do so, if they come to him and believe, he promises them it will be the end of their hunger and thirst. Never again will they thirst or hunger. All right? That's, that's, that's the promise. But as we said a minute ago, it's very hard for us to get our minds off our stomachs. Satan knew this and exploited exploited this weakness of man and the temptation of the Son of Man. But here, Jesus is not speaking of our stomachs, never thirsting or hungering again. Jesus is speaking not of our stomachs, but of our souls. Now, I want us to move away from thoughts of food. Because that's where Jesus is leading us at this time. Think of your soul. If man's basic, most basic instinct is self-preservation, rightfully, this applies first to his soul. Since Adam's fall, we have been banished from the Garden of Eden, and we know it. Deep down to the innermost depths of our heart, We know it. We are filthy with lusts and temptations and sin, both through the original sin inherited from Adam and through our own hat tip to Chris, through our own countless additions to that sin committed ourselves minute by minute and day by day. When Chris first came to this church one day, I got into an argument with him because I made a stupid statement to a mathematician. I said to Chris, Chris, we sin thousands of times a day. And Chris said, what? We don't sin thousands of times a day. What on earth is wrong with you? Well, you know me. I'm just a wallflower, and so I doubled down. I said, yes, we do. And he said, no, we... And you know, if you've ever talked to Chris, from that point on, I had trouble getting a word in edgewise, you know? It was like... It was like, you know, one of those guns they're trying to outlaw, you know? It just kept firing at me. And it was hopeless. Finally, I looked at Chris and I said, Chris, you just sinned right now. Well, that shut him up. He looked at me. He said, I did? How? And I said, well... I'm trying to speak, and you just interrupt me. I can't get a word in edgewise. 
Then Chris gave me this really sweet look. And he said, that's true. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Listen, we never stop sinning. And the older you get, the more aware of it you'll be. When we're young, we only think of sins of commission. We never think of sins of omission. Once you get into sins of omission, that you don't do what God calls you to do. Once you start thinking about your failure to love, even the people that God has given you closest to you to love. Our awareness of our depravity is the word we use theologically. Our awareness of our filthiness. And those of you who are children, children have a very, very sensitive awareness of their sin. You have to get older and go to school to lose that. But you don't ever want to lose it. You want to grow in tenderness towards God. And as you grow in tenderness towards God, you grow in your awareness that God's holy and that you're not. You can hide a lot of it. And if you have a bad mother, she'll teach you how to hide it. If you have a good mother, she'll try to exacerbate your awareness of it. <laughs> you know, She'll try to see you one and improve you ten. That's why I had a good mother. What exactly are we? Well, we all are a piece of work. Every single one of us here is a piece of work. The women are pieces of work in a different way than men are pieces of work. But we're all pieces of work. And as I said earlier, rightfully speaking, if, if our most basic instinct is self-preservation, it should start with our souls. We should love our souls. And so, why do we not want to come to Jesus? He says that he will be bread for us eternally. Since Adam's fall, we have been banished from the Garden of Eden, and we know it. Deep down to the innermost depths of our heart, We know it. We are filthy with lusts and temptations and sin, both through the original sin inherited from Adam and through our own, hat tip to Chris, countless additions to that sin committed ourselves minute by minute and day by day. And so, listen, brothers and sisters, abortion is no real shock to an honest man at least an honest man who has some degree of self awareness. He knows he is many times over a murderer of his fellow man. He knows he is a son of Cain, fully capable of killing even his righteous brother, even as Cain killed his righteous brother Abel. We know we are bloody. We will fight and quarrel to get what we desire, just as James warns us. But our bloodiness of mind and heart is only the tip of the iceberg of the sin we bear day after day on our heavy consciences. We know God is there. I so often grieve over Christians' timidity in confessing their faith. It's like you believe the lies that the world tells you that they don't think homosexuality is wrong, that they think 
transsexualism is a gift, that they think this, they think that, that they have their God. My God is this, my God is that. Don't ever, ever believe the world. They start by defying and denying God, and so, of course, they'll lie to cover their tracks. Remember, God is there. And he has put knowledge of himself in the heart of man. That's the whole point of Romans 1. We know God is there, but we dare not look at him or speak to him. We dare not pray to him, knowing his hatred for sin and for the wicked. Yet we yearn for him every waking moment of our lives. Just as Augustine put it, we never stop sensing deep inside that we were made for God and that our hearts will never be at rest until we rest in him. He made us for himself. And so really, we're not surprised to read Jesus speaking of the hunger and thirst of our soul. We, we sense it. We mourn over it. We feel it deep down to the foundation of our being. Everybody has their favorite sections of Scripture. This has to be one of my very, very top ones. Do you remember the Apostle Peter when Jesus first came to the Apostle Peter? In Luke 5, beginning with verse 3, we read of Jesus... He, Jesus, got into one of the boats, which was Simon, Simon Peter. This is Peter. He got into one of the boats, which was Peter's, Simon's, and he asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he, Jesus, sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard hard all night and caught nothing but I'll do as you say and let down the nets magnanimous of him wasn't it (laughs) oh man when they had done this The nets enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them, and they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Is this not our own response to the press when Jesus is present? Is this not our own response to Jesus' words that are recorded in Scripture? Isn't this our response to his death and resurrection? Isn't this our response to the preaching of his word? Isn't it really our response to the fellowship of his people around the table of his body and blood. Get away from me, Lord, for I am a wicked man. We never stop being aware that we deserve nothing good from God. And so what? Very often, so, we don't come. We don't eat. You know, again and again, the question asked of Jesus when he was in flesh here on earth was the same as the question asked by the Philippian jailer when he realized he had just, by a hair's breadth, escaped death at his own hand. You remember what he said? He said, what must I do to be saved? Now, you know this jailer was not a weak man with deep insecurities. His response came from a manly man. 
A manly man in the presence of death, with the full knowledge that it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. Immediately his response is to say, what must I do to be saved? That's how close to the surface our awareness of the fall. Our awareness of original sin, our awareness of our sin, our awareness of God's holiness, our awareness that God sees everything. It's right there. A Roman jailer. And faced with death, he says, what must I do to be saved? Man knows that he is an immortal soul. Deep inside, he knows this fact as well as he knows that he has a body. But whereas he knows and practices the feeding of his body each day, he doesn't know what to do to feed and to preserve and to save his soul. And so he asks, what must I do to be saved? You know that this was the question that drove the crowds to Jesus. This was the endless question that everybody had that hung on Jesus' every word. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Okay? So the answer's clear, right? They said, give us this bread. He said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Now then, would they come to him? (laughs) Remember I asked earlier, would you come to Jesus? You said yes. Would they come to him? Would they believe in him? Now listen. Don't believe the flatterers. Jesus is not more than anything else gentle and lowly. And we see this repeatedly in his declarations to those who are seeking him. To those who are attentive to what he said to them. For instance, here. One would think Jesus, at this very point, would be at his most gentle and lowly. The crowds are attentive. They've asked him to give him that bread. He said, I am the bread of life. He's told them to come to him and believe in him. And here is what he says next. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. This is Jesus. Jesus is not your lapdog. There were people there who had said, give us this bread, knowing they were asking for soul food. Who, when he said, yet you do not believe, He was speaking to them and rebuking them for saying they wanted the food. Don't be cheap with your soul. Don't be cheap with your soul. Your soul is immoral. At this point in the first service, I went off on mothers. (laughs) Because what I was trying to get across to our children is, you know, your goal in life is not to please your mother. I hope you'll please your mother. But your mother can be fooled about who you are and what you are. How many mothers I've had tell me, well, I know he's, 
I know he's a Christian because he prayed the sinner's prayer with me in his bedroom when I was five. <laughs> you know, and it's like, ding dong, he's lived 30 years as a devil from hell in California now. And wake up. I want you to please your mothers if they're godly, but if your mother teaches you to be superficial and sentimental and romantic about your soul, she is destructive to eternal life. Don't let her fool you. There are people here today who would say, I want that bread, and who do not believe. Now, who are they? Well, by God's kindness, I don't know, although I could give you some pretty good guesses. I actually have people here that I don't think are believers. Every pastor should have that. After all, how do you care for your sheep if you're not able to make a distinction between those you think are regenerate and those you don't think are? This was the first thing that Martin Lloyd-Jones asked of everybody that came in his office for counsel. He tried to establish whether they were regenerate or not. Would be helpful knowing how to deal with a sheep if you knew whether it was a sheep or a wolf. Right? In other words, I don't have thoughts because I'm aggressive. I am aggressive. <laughs> my son-in-law who walked into my aggression in my garage last night <laughs> has some near-death experience of that. <laughs> you know? It wasn't that bad, though. Yeah, no, stop your facial tics. <laughs> I adore you, Doug. I adore you. Listen. I want you to, to hunker down on the truth that after they said to him, give us this bread, and then he said, I'm the bread, and then he told him to come to him. He then said, you don't believe. Hunker down on that and think that through. How is it helpful for Jesus to point out that there are people present who ask for the bread who don't want it? You say, well, what do you mean, don't want it? And I say, he said that they would not come, that they did not believe. Okay? Verse 37, he continues. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. You know, we focus on the second half of that verse. Won't cast out. Oh, how many times that's comforted me, right? He won't cast out. I'll come to him. But what on earth do we ever think about the first half or the first two-thirds of the verse? What are the first two-thirds of the verse? All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me. We've got two commands there to come. Those the Father gives him will come to him, and those who come to him, he will not cast out. It's very interesting at this point that John Calvin goes off on election and, and, and reprobation and decrees and says basically stupid, stupid men talk about the decrees of God and election here. Did you hear what I just said? He says it's stupid to go on about election and the decrees here. Why? Why does he say that? Well, he says that because he's trying to get us to focus on the fact that it says all that the Father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me. In other words, don't talk about election. Come! I mean, do you get it? All this yip-yapping about sovereignty of God and election, and it's such a comfort to me, and, and God calls us, and, and listen, it's all true. But have you noticed over the last five centuries since the Reformation, all we've ever talked about is God's sovereignty and election, and no one says anything about Coming to Jesus. 
No one says anything about obedience. It is a command to come. You are to obey that command. And if you want to know whether or not you're elect, just look at whether or not you're coming to Jesus. I mean, oh my goodness. Do you know whether or not you're elect? Do you know whether or not you're elect? Because, now I'm being facetious here. Because, you know what? You might as well not bother coming if you're not elect. Now, you should be laughing. It's a tautology. You know what a tautology is, right? It's like circular logic, which is no logic at all. Well, let's see. Am I elect? Well, I'm not going to bother coming because we'd be of all men most miserable if there's nothing at the other end because I'm not elect and he hasn't chosen me. And so, pastor, do you think I'm... Wife, do you think I... Mama, do you think I'm... How do I know if I'm elect? Because I ain't going to go through taking up my cross. (laughs) Are you with me? If I'm not elect. Because it says those that God chooses will come. And so what I need to know is whether I'm chosen. Because it's humiliating being a Christian today. I ain't going to go through that if I'm not chosen. It's just stupid. What you need to know is that it is the prerogative of God to give you commands. He made you. And through his son, he says, Come. And it is incumbent upon you to come. And that's the end of it. That is the end of it. You say, oh no, it's not, because I can't come if I'm not chosen. Did Jesus say all of you who are elect should come? No. He didn't qualify the command. He simply made the observation that you would know whether or not you're elect by your coming. And you say, well, I'm not going to come until I know. And I say, okay, like I said, this is circular. And you'll never get off it. Because there will always be good reasons not to come to Jesus. Listen, I look out at you and I see you and I know you. You know I know you. Some of you I don't, but most of you I do. And I'm going to tell you, some of you have spent your life counting up your reasons to not come to God. And you say, oh no, there's nobody here like that. Oh yeah, there are people here like that. There are people here who are constantly rehearsing the wrongs that have been done to them. You cannot come to Jesus if you're counting up the failures of God in your life. You have no idea what God is doing with you. He commands you to come. You spend your life counting your suffering instead of your blessings. God doesn't owe you anything. Haven't you learned that so far? You count all your sufferings. Go ahead, count them up. What does God owe you? You say, well, he owes me that I wouldn't have gone through this and I wouldn't have gone through that and I wouldn't have gone through the other thing. My dad wouldn't have died. Oh, okay, knock your socks off. Alexander Solzhenitsyn has three volumes of the Gulag Archipelago. And he'll see you one and raise you 10 billion. If you've ever read it. I'm nearly done. Man is wicked. Man does wicked things, and not just to animals. Man does wicked things to other men. 
and to women and to children. Jesus says, come. He doesn't say, spend your life accusing him of evil. He doesn't say, count up all your suffering and bring it to me and I'll look through the list and and try to heal some of it. He says, come to me. I am the bread of life. If you come to me, if you believe in me, you will not hunger and you will never thirst. And you say, well, how does that work? I have so much pain. It's like, dude, do that. Have you ever read the Bible? You talk about pain? Have you ever read the Bible? This is an evil world. You are evil yourself. Come. Stop accusing God of being evil. Stop counting all your suffering and thinking that God owes you something. God owes us nothing. Nothing. You should be thankful that you're hearing me saying this. This is God's blessing to you that I am telling you he owes you nothing. The next statement, verse 38, is mind-boggling. Right after Jesus says this, okay? That he will certainly not cast out those who come to us. He says this. He says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. What was the will of his father when he sent him here? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. You remember in the garden, he says to God, if it be possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus here makes a pretty outlandish statement that he is not interested in doing what he wants to do. I mean, you realize that. He says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And the will of him who sent him was that he die. That he give his life as a sin offering for you. And you say, well, there you go again. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. And so from eternity past, there is a pact between the Father and the Son for the soul of believers. And so God has chosen those who will belong to him from before the foundation of the earth. And Jesus has come to purchase those souls with his own blood. And Jesus comes to us and all the work has been done. And now he commands us. And he says, come. Come. He reveals the will of his Father. And the will is all that his Father has given him, Jesus, that he lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. And then he says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Heaven has become more precious to us as a congregation the last few years, eh? We have more up there, don't we? And we tend to think about our mothers and dads. I said to Mary Lee yesterday, Ah, I wish that my mom and dad and your mom and dad were here. I miss them. And she said, Well, we're the old people now. We've lost a lot of good uns, haven't we, the last couple of years? 
you, your mom. The will of God is that everyone who sees the Son, beholds means sees, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And then Jesus says, I myself will raise him up on the last day. And so this is where we end. We end with the command to come, right? If you hear me squishing as I walk, it's because there's now a bunch of water. And obviously, no, just sit down, sit down. Water don't don't hurt anybody. I mean, didn't we just <laughs> listen? Would it make sense to you? Listen to what Jesus says. Jesus is in the upper room, and he has his high priestly prayer. Listen to what he says. He says, "I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world." So again, this theme that God gives His Son certain people. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you've given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believe that you sent me. It's almost identical language, you know. I ask on their behalf. I don't ask on behalf of the world. Notice There's that gentle and lowly again. I don't ask on the basis of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, to keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Then listen to this statement. He says, While... I was with them. I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. And so, of course, (laughs) to say the obvious... What I want is to see you at the marriage feast of the Lamb. That's what I want. I don't want you missing. Okay? It's a very personal thing. Jesus was the same. What do we want? We want to be together for eternity. Why is death so awful? It's because you get separated from the people that are most dear to you. Death is an enemy. Resignation is an enemy. Separation is an enemy. It's not what God intended. And so, at the end, I ask you, will you come to Jesus? Will you give up your pride? Will you give up your precious hurts? Will you give up your money? I say it for the second week in a row. Some of you love, not God, but money. And I say that as your pastor of many years. Will you give up your money? You're going to have a good shepherd who will step into the traces tonight. And he will have exactly the same desire and concern for you that I have had, which is that at the marriage feast of the Lamb, there will be none of you missing, not one of you. And so you come. You bring your sin. You bring your filthiness. It don't bother any of us. I mean, we might yell at you about it. 
but we're not thinking we're too clean to be with you. We're thinking you be too clean to be with us. And so, put your eyes on Jesus. He's the author and the finisher of your faith. And you come. Put your hands over your ears. Scream, life! Eternal life! And don't stop running. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your precious gifts to us of fellowship, of the table of our Lord, of baptism, of shepherds, of deacons, of Titus too, women. We thank you for your precious gift of the Word of God and its preaching. The Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for his blood. Thank you for his righteousness. Feed us his body and blood forever, we pray. In his precious name, amen.